Okay. I'm going to start by just, um, before we read Revelation 11, just kind of give a little caveat and then tell you where we're going. Okay, Revelation 11. Is this on? Can you hear me? No, it's not on. Okay, now it's on. Okay. All right, Revelation chapter 11, and I'm going to give a little caveat here before we read it. One thing we can definitely take a lesson from this section is a lesson on humility, because this is probably the most difficult section in, in Revelation, this particular chapter. A lot of the commentators agree that they don't really know what to do with all the pieces, and all the different views have different pieces of this chapter that kind of fit with in their framework. All oh, this this is definitely this. But then the other pieces don't really fit. And so for every single view, um, this is a difficult chapter. Uh, and so we're going to do our best, but we can be thankful that the plain things are the main things. And what we do know is clear. And the main message of this chapter and of Revelation is still very clear, even if we don't understand all the specifics. So, for sure, one thing we can learn is, is humility. But let's read Revelation 11 together, and then we'll kind of work through it. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was giving a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been, had been a torment to them, to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign, and the nations rage, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding 
your, of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Okay. Uh, um, we're gonna, I'm going to just show a couple of different slides here. Oh, I'm, I've got the thing, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was pushing the buttons. Okay. All right. Uh, we've, I've showed this many, many times, but it's worth doing, especially now. And this has kind of been one of the main thrusts of what we've been talking about with Revelation is, is simply this, that the main things the pl- are the plain things, and everyone, all the different positions, as long as you're not a heretic, uh, we agree on. And that all those are clear in this passage. That ultimately, Jesus has authority. That ultimately, every single person, what God wants for them is faith in Jesus. Not only that, that there's forgiveness found in Jesus. That Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's our Lord, which means we need to obey him. Um, Remember what Jesus said in, I think it's Luke 13, Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? He's not our Lord. Uh, he's He's not our Lord if He's only our Savior. Does that make sense? That it always goes together. Jesus is always our Savior and Lord. It's not. It's not. I want Jesus to save me from my sins, but I don't really want to listen to Him. I don't actually want Him to have control over my life. That's never the case. It's always that He's our Savior and Lord, which means we obey Him. But not only that, in the midst of difficulty, there's endurance in Jesus. That the Christ who saved us is the one who sustains us throughout the rest of our life, who gives us what we need each day in the midst of difficulties. We see that definitely here, that there's definitely going to be difficulties in our life, that we should worship God, Jesus specifically, um, but the triune God. We see that at the end of this section, the praise of the 24 elders. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, And so, we definitely see worshiping God here, and then finally, victory of Jesus over evil. That the seventh trumpet, just like the seventh seal, is the end of the world. Everything's, it says right at the seventh, blow of the seventh trumpet, everyone's going to be judged. And so, everything's going to be put right. It's going to be time for the dead to be judged, and God's going to reign ultimately. Okay. Got to keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, uh, I already said this, but I'm just going to give a couple different examples. This section is difficult for every position. One thing that might come might come to your mind immediately is that Jerusalem actually was sieged for three and a half years, for 42 months. And the Gentiles literally did trample the outer courts. So that sounds very much like this preterist, partial preterist view of this is talking about first century things. That sounds like exactly what happened, but there's a problem. A lot of this other stuff doesn't sound like it literally happened, <laughs> like prophets rising from the dead and fire coming out of their mouth uh, and killing people. So there's a problem there. Um, the futurist view would say this is all literally going to happen in the future. There's going to be this, you know, this new, there's going to be a new temple and it's going to be rebuilt and this is literally going to happen. 
Well, the problem with that is uh, it's talking about these two prophets not as individuals but as symbolic, very clearly symbolic because earlier on in the book of Revelation, it talks about the lampstands being symbols of church of the church. And so to give them to people this symbol uh, that's already been used in another place for larger groups uh, would be kind of disjointed. So that's kind of a problem for the futurist. The, histori- the historicist kind of has the same problem in every chapter, which is that none of the historicists can agree which type of time of history this is referring to, and there's like a bunch of different interpretations that all seem to kind of fit. <laughs> but the again, the problem is any single one of the people that they put uh, into these two prophets is doesn't quite fit. Um, we don't really actually have uh, some of the reformers breathing out fire and killing people. So that's a, that's a problem. And then for the symbolic, uh, the which would be like amillennial in general, is saying that this is representative of a lot of different things. Well, the problem is they don't know what a lot of this is representing. I tend to fall on this view, but this passage gives me some problems because it's like, well, this is symbolic of all the things happening uh, throughout history. Well, what is this? What does this symbolize? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, what does this symbolize? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> and so, if it, whatever it's symbolizing is still confusing to me. And so, the reality is, is that for each one of these positions, it doesn't quite fit. Uh, we should just have humility. We have an open hand uh, with a lot of these things, but what we don't have an open hand with is the clear things, the main things. So, just because we don't know what every single image of this passage uh, symbolizes doesn't mean that it's not helpful for building us up and for correction and reproof and for instruction. And so we're going to do our best to go through it, and I'm hoping that it will be an encouragement to you, even if it's confusing. And so, I mean, probably more in the book of Revelation than any other section, I should say, I'm not sure on a lot of this. I'm doing my best to interpret it. The things that I'm sure on, I'll, I'll say that. The things that I feel less sure on, I'll I'll be open about that, and we could disagree. And there could be a time in the future where I come back to this and say, well, I actually see more clearly, or maybe maybe I won't. But the reality is I'm just kind of putting that out there. Uh, even the commentators that I you know, have read and looked on, they struggle. Um, and they spent years and years, you know, given sabbatical to write books on and study all they could, and they still struggle with this. So that's kind of the caveat. Okay. Now we're going to get into the weeds, but I'm going to try not to take too long on it. There's some definitely some things that are clearly Old Testament illusions in this section. The problem is they're still kind of confusing. <laughs> and so I'll give you just a couple. Um, for example, you see these, we see these prophets. Uh, we can actually turn this off here. We see these prophets, and they're compared to olive trees and lampstands. There's a section in Zechariah where we see the exact same image. Zechariah 4, I'll just read it to you, 12 to 14. It's just a short section, but it's representative. A second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden lampstands from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. (laughs) Kind of encouraging there, (laughs) because I don't know either. Um... Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And later on in the, I won't read the whole section, but the, the two anointed is Zerubbabel, the governor, 
um, who basically, this is coming back from the exile, and then Joshua the priest, and together they rebuild the temple. These are the two anointed ones, the kind of the king, basically, and the priest, which obviously makes you think of Jesus. This also fits into a larger kind of narrative. If you'll notice, in throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this really this emphasis where if there's going to be witnesses, there's almost always two witnesses because the Bible's clear, you know, you, the evidence of two witnesses. And so even things that in at the first in your mind, you might not immediately think, oh, this is the two witnesses again. For example, in Exodus, there's those two midwives who help the Israelite ladies um, when the Pharaoh's trying to destroy and kill. It's like, at first, it doesn't describe them as witnesses, but then you realize, oh, these are the two. These are two witnesses to Pharaoh's sin. They're going around and seeing Pharaoh's trying to kill all these babies, and there's so many examples like this where there's these witnesses of um, throughout the Bible. It's always two witnesses, and so that's kind of a clue. Maybe this is symbolic: the two witnesses. But let's get into some of the things that are more clear. The first thing I want to say is this. We are going to suffer in the present age. We are going to suffer in the present age. That Jesus has come. He's died on the cross for our sins. He's given us his spirit, all who have faith in him. He's given us new power by the spirit. He's defeated the devil, but he's not returned yet to put everything right. And in this age, we will suffer. We're going to suffer. Jesus said it this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We absolutely see this in this passage. The prophets speak the truth. They speak the truth, and what's the world's response? They kill them and rejoice when they're dead. That if you really love people, if you really act like Jesus, people are going to hate you, and there's going to be suffering. And that's just part of living in this world. There's going to be suffering. And again... As we've said through the book of Revelation, one way you could interpret it is really kind of a commentary, an extended commentary on the idea that don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something strange were happening to you. That ultimately there's difficulty coming for the church, for every individual, but God is there to sustain us and to help us that we're going to suffer. And again, I have to remind myself, and maybe maybe you're different, um, and maybe it's because, I, in general, I think I'm an optimist, uh, probably to a fault. And I just get surprised by suffering. Basically, every day, I think things are going to go good. I think things are going to go right. And when they don't, it surprises me, even though I know it shouldn't, <laughs> because every single day <laughs> uh, something happens. And so the reality is we're going to suffer. But that doesn't mean God's absent, does it? That doesn't mean God's absent. But what do we do? Okay. This is a reality. This is just something we know is that we're going to suffer. It's a piece of information we need to have in our mind. But there's also some commands here. And this actually dovetails to the end of chapter 10, which I didn't really go into too much, about the prophecy. He's given this little scroll. He eats it. It's bitter and sweet. And he's told to prophesy to the nations. And one reason I didn't get too much into it is because we're going to talk about it today, is that the just like these two witnesses, however you take them, we're supposed to speak the truth. Prophecy is proclaiming inspired revelation. We are supposed to speak the truth. I mean, one way we do that is truth from the Bible. We just tell people the truth, and we're willing to speak the truth. This is really, really important. 
Many times there are little things in your life that make a huge difference, right? It's very rare that there's one big moment that actually changes everything. You know, if the person that you are today, the vast majority of it is the little things you do every single day and they build up over time. The vast, vast majority. It's very rare that there's this one big cataclysmic moment that changes you forever. Um, the vast majority of who you are is made up of these little decisions every single day. Here's one thing that can make a huge difference in your life, in the trajectory of your life, the impact of your life, for, for the kingdom and for pleasing the Lord, just this. I'm going to speak the truth, period. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to proclaim what God said is true. It is a really, really big deal just to speak the truth. Just to say, I'm going to speak the truth. No ifs, ands, or buts. To individuals, I'm going to speak the truth. To culture, I'm going to speak the truth. To groups, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm always going to speak the truth. And this is going to be bitter and sweet, like we talked about in the last chapter. Speaking the truth is bitter and sweet. People do not want to hear the truth. It's bitter, right? People do not want to hear, I do not want to hear that I'm a sinner and I still have problems. I definitely didn't want to hear that I'm a sinner in need of somebody to die on the cross for my sins, right? That was a bitter truth to swallow that I was that bad, that I needed a Savior. And yet, it's sweet. At the same moment, I realized, wow, I'm a lot worse than I thought, but I'm also more loved than I could have ever hoped. It's bitter and it's sweet. And there's a thousand ways, we could go over a thousand examples of that, that the truth is bitter and sweet. It is better to know the truth, even if it hurts, right? It's better to know the truth than to walk around in unreality. It's bitter and truth. It's bitter and sweet to speak the truth. If you speak the truth, if you decide, I'm going to speak the truth, you will lose friends. Eventually, it's going to come to a place where you decide, hey, I'm just going to say the truth. And you're going to lose friends over this. Almost certainly. There's times when somebody comes to you, they ask you, they speak a situation, about a situation, and you can tell they just want affirmation. And if you decide, but in this moment, I'm just going to speak the truth. I know what they want as my affirmation, but I'm going to say, actually, I think maybe they were right there, and I think you, you probably need to ask for forgiveness. That's going to hurt. If somebody's coming expecting one thing and you give the other, you can be clear as you want, but I'm saying this because I love you. I would want you to do this to me. I want to be corrected. There's going to be times when you lose a friend. That's going to be bitter. But there's a sweetness. There's a sweetness that if you have a friend who you know is going to tell you the truth, even if it hurts, that's a sweet friend. That The friends you still have are going to even value even more <laughs> because they're going to know. I can go to this person and I can ask, hey, we, I know you'll tell me the truth. I need, I need your advice here. I need you to correct me here. You'll be able to be a positive influence in people's life. And ultimately, here's the main thing, you're going to know that God is pleased. Think about that. How much more important just to please the Lord than to please people? Much more important. Be able to lay your head down on your pillow at night and know, I tell the truth. I told the truth. God, I try to be faithful. 
Results are in his hands. This is a really, really big deal. And I can't... There's so many things... There's so many, so many examples that we could give. I'm sure you guys have examples of being at work and being asked to do something. I I know the vast majority of people have been put in this situation, asked to cut a corner, asked to just bend the truth a little bit. And if you say no, even if... Even if the person asking you to do it, they will, in many cases, not in all cases, sometimes they'll just be mad, but in many cases they'll end up respecting you and trusting you more. There's, a, there's lots of opportunities to do this at work, uh, as a husband and a wife, whenever you're married, um, in friendships, in churches. This is really, really important, and it can make a really big difference in people's life. And so, just speak the truth. You cannot imagine what God's going to do with it. You just have no idea. You don't know. Just to say, hey, I'm not going to photocopy this book because that's illegal. Uh, We should buy the book if we need the book for school. You know, this happened. You know, lots of things. There's so many opportunities like this. And you just don't know what God's going to do with it. You just have to trust him. Okay, speak the truth. This is a big deal. Um, And obviously it was bitter for these prophets, figurative or or literal. They died, right? But they're a lesson to us as well. Next thing. God will protect you for the duration of your ministry. And when it's time to end, trust will God will use the truth. I like this quote, one plus God makes a majority. One plus God makes a majority. Even if it's just you and God. That's okay. I wonder if that's part of the appeal of this section. There's only two witnesses. <laughs> There's only two, right? I think they're symbolic of the church just because we saw that earlier in Revelation that the lampstands were symbolic of the church, that they're symbolic of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and priest, but you know we ourselves are priests of God, um, that we're going to reign with Christ, that ultimately, I think it's symbolic of the church, but the reality is the story is just two, but two is enough. God used the two. God will protect you during the duration of your ministry. It says specifically that if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. God protects them. It reminds me of this verse in Acts. I think that's figurative. But in Acts 13.36, it says, For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. After he had served his purpose in his own generation, David fell asleep. That's true for all of us. That once we've done what God has us to do, our purpose, we're going to fall asleep. We're going to die. And God's going to continue on his work through others. But it's only until then. Um, And we want to be people that do fulfill our purpose, right? That do listen to God no matter what. And so we trust him. We speak the truth. Again, you might think of some Old Testament examples that seem similar to this. For example, uh, something that obviously comes to mind is when Elijah called down fire from heaven. It wasn't from his mouth. It actually came down from heaven and consumed those opposing him. 
Um, that's obviously an Old Testament reference. Again, I'm not sure on this part of the, the fire and, and, and the rain, that's again like Elijah. Um, and so I, I'm not exactly sure. Is Elijah one of these? Is it supposed to be symbolically Elijah in some way? I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that what is true for these two prophets is true for every Christian, that God will protect them until it's time. It doesn't mean that uh, we're never going to suffer. It doesn't mean that we might not even die. But even in death, we're protected, right? Think about John 11. I think that's that's not the right chapter. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I'm going to flip there just so I get it word perfect. This is what Jesus says in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Even if we die, we live, right? Because there's a resurrection. For every Christian who's trusting in Christ, there's eternal life. That even if we die, we live. And so the reality is, is that there is, there is a possibility that we'll suffer and die, but it's only at the end, right? When God has used us as how he wants. So let's be available until that time comes. Let's speak the truth is one of the ways. You know, the word witness is kind of an interesting word that comes out throughout this whole chapter and through the whole book of Revelation. In Greek, is just the word martyr, and that's where we get our word martyr. When we, when we think of martyr, we think of somebody dying for their faith, but the word martyr is just a witness, a witness, somebody who's speaking the truth, right? What is a witness? Somebody who goes into the court and just says the truth, and that's what we're to be. We're just to speak the truth about what Christ has done in our life, about what God says in his word, and we don't want to underestimate that. Okay, one more thought here, and then... I'll give you a couple examples from history and then kind of wrap this up. God often allows or, or uses a tearing down to paradoxically build up. God often uses a tearing down, something that looks like things are falling apart. It looks like thing, the, you know, the war is lost, and God is using that to actually build up. And you see that here in this section where the prophets are speaking the truth and people are not happy about it. it doesn't, people aren't receiving it. Even worse, they end up killing the prophets, and they're just lying there dead. They don't even get to be buried. It seems like a failure, right? It seems like a loss. It's like things are falling apart. And then what? God raises raises the two prophets, and it ends up, that's what actually ends up convicting the world. Um, of course, one thing that this makes us think of is Jesus, Right? Jesus literally died, and after three days was raised from the dead. And again, isn't that maybe the most clear example of God tearing down to build up? What would, what would be the best thing for God to build up his church? To kill the head of the church? That doesn't make sense. And yet, it does. And yet, Christ did die for us, for our sins. Why? to purchase for himself a bride, to build the church. This happens over and over in lots of different places. You've probably heard this saying before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This happened over and over in history. There's lots of examples of 
well, even in the Bible, the stoning of Stephen and all the Christians, you know, basically leaving Jerusalem, you know, being scattered because of persecution and what? And the church actually spreads and flourishes. This persecution and scattering seemed like a tearing down, a separation, a breaking of fellowship, and yet it built up the church. It's, this church spread even further, grew even faster. Okay, I'll give you an example here that I like. I'm going to kind of wrap all these things up with an example from history that at one time in history, again, I think that this section could be applied to lots of different periods in history, that there's a lot of people that you could see pieces of this. Um, but at one point, they thought Wycliffe and Huss were, and again, there's a thousand uh, interpretations of Revelation, so I'm just going to give you one, but I thought that Wycliffe and Huss are a good example of how God could use this and all these you know, points that we've already talked about. And so I'll just give you a little church history lesson here that I hope is a help, helpful to you. So Wycliffe um, was at Oxford during the bubonic plague, which swept through London, and 100,000 people died just in London. Okay, This was in the uh, 1,300s. Um, and so 14th century. So Wycliffe was in London at the time, and in the midst of this trial, he's actually converted. Uh, which is another example of God using great suffering and difficulty to, for good and to build up. But he's converted in the midst of all this. And at this time, to know like kind of the context of this period in history, the Roman Catholic Church has tons of power, and there's not a lot of gospel presence around. Just to give you kind of a feeling of how much power he had, at that time the Pope was collecting taxes from the King of England. So think about that. The Pope was collecting taxes from the King of England. Um, make sure you send in your taxes. Uh, you, <laughs> I can't imagine that, but that's the situation going on. So he was even over kings, um, over a lot of places. And Wycliffe wrote this tract, um, and he, he wrote a tract, and he really was convinced that the Pope was the Antichrist uh, from the book of Revelation and that the Bible was the supreme authority, not the Pope, and that Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. And so he, he really believed, Wycliffe believed, that those, only those who have faith are the true church. And so this is kind of the situation. He's speaking the truth, and I guess just reading this section, you'd think the Pope was happy about that? <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was mad. And so what happened was the Pope... Um, excommunicates Wycliffe. He puts him out of the church in 1377. And then eventually the King of England denounces Wycliffe as well. And Wycliffe decides that he really believes that he needs to translate the Bible into English, into the English language. And it seems like maybe this is the first time this really happens. Um, uh, we've talked about in the past in one of the previous messages that in France, um, someone had translated the Gospels in to French, but this is, we're talking English now, and he really becomes convinced that the English, people needed to hear this in English, and at the time they would speak the Mass in Latin, and most people wouldn't even be able to understand what they were saying. So he translates the Bible with the help of some other scholars from Oxford into English. Again, this seems like it's likely the first time. 
And people go around, a lot of people go around actually sharing this throughout England. And they named themselves, actually, no, they didn't name themselves. They were called the Lollards, which basically means it's a term of scorn for mumbler. So they would go around and they made fun of them, calling them Lollards. And now, to this day, we still call them Lollards, mumblers. But they actually spread the gospel throughout England. And they would travel England preaching the Bible in English. Um, and this made a really big difference in the history of of England and of the church. And a lot of people were, were saved. He ends up dying. Um, Wycliffe ends up dying in 1384. And this is how much the church hated Wycliffe. Later on, uh, after he died... They did not like that he was buried in a church cemetery. So the Pope ordered, go dig up his bones and move him to somewhere else. You know, you can imagine how much you got to, you know, really hate somebody to decide, like, I know he's dead, but boy, his bones are over there and I just want him in a worse place. Let's dig him up. And you're thousands of miles away, you know, send somebody to do it. Well, they did that. And then still, he was still getting under their skin. Like, ah, he's dead, but his bones are still over there. And so they decided, let's dig up his bones from the second place we put them, because that wasn't bad enough, and let's grind them up and burn them and then throw them into the river because we really hate Wycliffe. And so they did that, which is crazy. Um, they literally, 41 years later, had his bones dug up again, second time, to be burned and thrown into the river. So you can see that Wycliffe, they really, really hated him. Like, really, really hated him. In fact, I can't think of something much more crazy than that. It sounds like a like a joke. Like if you were writing a villain in a book, you're like, how about we have him dig up the bones of the, the hero and grind him to dust just because he hates him so much. That sounds like a cartoon. Sounds like a political cartoon. That's literally what happened. Okay. But this huge thing happened. The Bible is in English. <laughs> it's like, wow, the Bible is in English. Can you imagine for the first time somebody reads the Bible to you? It's like, wow, I can finally understand the Bible. I get to hear God's word for the first time. What a blessing. And even though it seems in one sense a failure, right? Like Wycliffe ended up dying um, of a stroke. It probably was related to all this, you know, persecution and different things like that. Um, so though they didn't directly kill him, they kind of did kill him. And, but yet it's not a failure. And it goes so many places. The, the truth of God's word uh, spreads. And I'll give you one example. The, uh, going on to the second example Huss. Um, Huss was not in England. He was in Prague, modern-day Czech Republic. And he's in school he, and in Prague. And he makes money for school, this guy named John Huss, by copying books by hand. Remember, the Gutenberg Press isn't around at this time. So he copies books by hand to make money to go to school. And he actually ends up copying Wycliffe, some of Wycliffe's books. And he's converted, which is pretty amazing. Wycliffe uh, he reads Wycliffe, and he's converted. He's saved. He's trusting the Lord. And he th thinks, wow, um, I think Wycliffe was right. And so he calls the Pope and the Cardinals reprobate, not Christians. You guys aren't even Christians, he says. And you can imagine what the Pope felt. This is years later. This is oh, after Wycliffe is already dead. And so Huss begins to preach the Bible in the common language of his home country, Czech, in the language of Czech, instead of Latin. And he's accused of heresy, being a heretic. He's excommunicated not once, not twice, not three times, 
but four times the Pope excommunicates us. <laughs> Sounds kind of like a repeat of what we're already talking about. Um, and the Pope wrote a decree against us. This is how bad this situation was. Okay, the Pope writes this decree, it's called a papal bull, against how bad Huss is. Some students burn the papal bull. Uh, some students in, uh, at the college decide to burn it publicly. Those students were beheaded, three of them. Um, and so they aren't even Huss himself. They're just saying, the Pope's wrong. That kind of gives you a feel for the situation that we're in, uh, the power of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and also just the severity of what's going on. But the encouraging thing is that during this whole time, Huss is leaning on the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. I believe that he, not only did he save me, that I, my faith is in him, but that he's in control even in the midst of suffering. And this is what he says. If you have been brought to faith in Christ, you can never be taken from his hand. So that's comforting him. He, he's being comforted by the time. This whole time, I'm trusting the Lord, and no one's going to take me out of the Lord's hand. He's in control. And so the Roman Catholic Church calls this council the Council of Constance, and they invite Huss to it. They invite him, and they promise him safety. I, guess, I wonder if you can guess what's going to happen. <laughs> he's not safe. Um, they promise him safety, but then he's arrested. This is what they tell them. See if you can connect this to the earlier part of our message. This is what they tell us. If you want to survive, all you have to do is agree with whatever the council says. If they tell you, you've only got one eye, but you know you have two, just agree with them. That's literally what they told him. This example of the eye. And this is what he says back. I can only testify to the truth. I cannot betray my own conscience. And he talks about... Um, Basically, he ends up saying, like, I'm not going to say I have one eye. I'm not even going to say I have one eye. Like, that's, even that I won't say. I'm going to tell the truth. Um, he says this. This is what Huss says. It is better to die well than to live badly. Uh, he also says this at kind of his trial. He says, I will condemn any work if you can show me where it is contrary to the Bible. So, he says, I'm going to tell the truth, no matter what, because I'm not going to betray my conscience. You actually, can you hear, if you know church history, this sounds a lot like Luther. And Luther actually self, himself was thinking of Huss during these times. Luther, earlier on, said, uh, when he's being tried, said, Huss, says, Huss lives in me. <laughs> Luther says that. So um, you can see how this continues on uh, to affect church history. I can only testify to the truth. I cannot betray my own conscience. Again, tell the truth. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how God's going to use it, even if it looks like a failure. Even if it looks like, wow, that didn't go well. Um, you have no idea. There's kind of an interesting thing that happens, and I don't know how much of this is, you know, late, hundreds of years later, it's hard to know exactly what's, you know, um, been, how many times the story's been passed down exactly. Um, but literally, this is what Huss prays as they end up burning him alive. At the stake, um, they put a paper on. They put a paper hat on Huss and say that he's the devil, that says the devil on it. And today Huss says, uh, to, Huss says this. Today you are burning a goose. Um, his name Huss means goose. Today you are burning a goose, and 100 years from now you will have a sw you will hear a swan sing and you won't be able to burn it. Which 100 years later Luther <laughs> uh, kind of says the same thing he said and ends up uh, they can't catch Luther. <laughs> so kind of interesting. Um, 
whether that's kind of a prophecy, uh, I don't know, or if it's just coincidence. Um, there, are, you know, ultimately God's in control, but um, Hus is Hus is Hus is not infallible, but God's word is infallible. Um, the reality is is that this is a good example uh, to us. He ends up being burned at the stake, and he be as he's burned sings. Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Just an example to us of all these things we already talked about. We're going to suffer in this world. It's not going to be easy. Uh, But we've got to speak the truth no matter what. We need to speak the truth. It's going to be bitter and sweet. The sweetness is obviously going to overtake the bitter. Um, there's going to be much more sweetness to know. I'm trusted the Lord. I've done what he wants me to do as best as I know how, no matter the consequences. That God's going to protect you as long as he wants you to you know, do what he has you to do on this earth, and one day that's going to end. And that's okay. Because ultimately, we're not the heroes, right? I'm not the hero. You're not the hero. Hustle isn't the hero. Jesus is the ultimate hero. He's the king. He's the victor. And so, yes, our lives are going to end. That's perfectly fine. Because we, we aren't the point, and we were never the point. And God's going to continue to work when we're all gone, and nobody remembers us. And that's okay. And in fact, that's good, because we want people to know Christ. God often uses a tearing down paradoxically to build up. The, the Reformation was a horrible time, a really bad time. And it looked bad, and it looked like tenuous, and it looked like, is the church actually going backwards, not going forwards? But now looking back, we know it's obviously going forward. It's so clear looking back that God was working. He was tearing down so he could build up. And that happens in our lives. How many times have you had a situation maybe in your marriage where there's conflict and it looks, it's like, man, this is hard. At the end, after working through it, you're actually, your, your relationship is actually stronger, not weaker. Right? After working through those things. Those things happen in lots of areas of our life. And we just press on. We do what God wants us to do, and we trust him that he is able, that he's good, that he's with us, that he will sustain us no matter what. I kind of like this quote. This is kind of a, this is half of a joke. This is what they said. Um, to the trouble with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. <laughs> That's kind of funny. It's like if, you, <laughs> if you're speaking the truth, um, there's some pressure it's kind of going to show what's really true. Do I really believe this? <laughs> Am I going to continue to say and to stand on the truth no matter what? Uh, there's some w- w- um, winnowing of the chaff there. And uh, I, like, I like that quote, and I thought it's a good quote. Um, the trouble with preachers today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. Over and over again, God works good through difficulty. I really like the end of this section where it says that God is going to destroy the destroyers of the earth. The devil is out to kill, steal, and destroy. And God will absolutely allow him to kill, steal, and destroy only in, only in the right amounts that actually proves good for the people of God and for his glory. Think about that. He just lets just the right amount through, the just the right amount of suffering to help you grow as a Christian, just the right amount 
of difficulty into your life so that you really feel your need and have to trust him. Just the right amount of difficulty for the church that we can learn to lean on him and trust him alone. To humble us, to help us, um, to grow us. And so over and over, this proves true. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. The result in the end is, just like the end of this chapter, worship. At the end of the day, at the end of creation, at the end of our lives, we're going to say, God is worthy. You are worthy. Thanks. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And for the roaring of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth. God's going to put everything right, and we're just going to praise him for it. God's going to put all these things right. And we can just trust. We can trust him in the midst of difficulty. And one other thought, just as we close. Just be thankful. I mean, be thankful for this by... We just read a very confusing section, maybe the most confusing in Revelation, and I didn't even give you a tenth of what I could have in terms of all the confusingness. (laughs) And so the reality is, even in the midst of all that, there's great encouragement in this chapter. And the fact is, you've got it in your own language. And this sounds... (laughs) This is kind of extreme, but I, I thought about it. I mean, imagine if we got a little bit of fake blood. There's Halloween, you know, they got it at Walmart or whatever. And I said, hey, on your way out today, I'm going to put a little drop of blood in the front of your Bible, you know, on the front corner. Not enough to ruin it, just enough to remind you that this was purchased for you at great cost. That the God's people paid a great and terrible price so that you could have this in your own language. It's true. <laughs> and maybe that'd be a good reminder each day as we get up and and we read the Bible that this is an amazing, amazing gift that God provided to you um, and his people by not compromising, by speaking the truth even when it hurt, even when it cost them their life, uh, lives. Many, many people uh, died to, for us, not only starting with Christ, dying for us to be able to know him, to be able to read this and understand it by his spirit, but his people falling after him and falling into his footsteps, speaking the truth even when it hurt, And now we've got this Bible. Um, It's a precious, precious gift from God and that he used his people to bring it to us. Um, It's an amazing thing. It's amazing, amazing. uh, It's an amazing, amazing gift that we have. I've shared this story before. uh, At one point in England, there were some kids who had the 23rd Psalm written in English. uh, uh, No, I think it was the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was written in English, and they ended up being burned. Uh, at the stake. And so the reality is, is even that little piece of the Bible in their own language is worth it. Um, but for us, we've got the whole thing. And if we one day we can't, um, we'll pray that that doesn't happen. But, but if one day we couldn't, we're going to continue on to just trust the Lord. And even just a little piece of this would be so precious, more precious than gold. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've given us your word in our own language and that we can read it and understand it. Thank you that we are free from persecution um, in terms of um, nothing like Huss and Wycliffe at this 
at this time in history and in our country. And so we do ask that that would continue to be the case. You would continue to have freedom to meet together, to read your word, to speak um, truth without fear of um, our lives. And we're so thankful for that. And we pray that it would continue for us and for our kids and our kids' kids. Pray for our nation. Have mercy on us. Pray for our leaders. Give them wisdom beyond themselves. Um, And we just want to thank you. Thank you so much, Jesus, for being willing to lay down your life so we could know you and be forgiven. Would you help us not to take things for granted? Help us not to take for granted all the gifts you've given us, your word, fellowship, um, just even the ability to speak the truth, uh, mouths that work and minds that can think and your word to inform us. We're so thankful. But we want to be more thankful each day. Would you help us? Thank you for Huss. Thank you for Wycliffe. Thank you for Luther and um, Tyndale and many of the others. We're just so thankful. Um, Would you help us in the midst of difficulty, whether that's close relationships, um, other things, just help us to have the strength to speak the truth always, um, trusting you that you, the results belong to you. Would you sustain us and help us this week? Um, We want to be more like you every day. So we're looking to you for help. Amen.